morning. We are so glad you're here with us. It's like fall now, right? Kids are back in school. The Lions are going to go to the Super Bowl. They won a game. Um, I went to a coffee shop the other day, and I'm trying to work, and I couldn't get on the Wi-Fi, and I went up to the lady. I'm like, what's the Wi-Fi password? Did you guys change it? She goes, yeah, we changed it. Now it's, it's all about the pumpkin. Like, yeah, great, pumpkin spice season. If you're like me, you don't like it, you don't want to hear about it, but that's, that's what we're in for for the next few months, right? Hey, we are going to kick off a new series this morning about um, our statements of faith as a church. This morning, we're going to begin with 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. So I want to invite you to stand with me as we read these verses. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible or on your phone. Um, But it starts in verse 14. Listen to this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Father, we thank you for this morning. We ask you to open our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our ears to your truth and walk with us as we explore these verses today with the intention of coming to you with humility through your word and letting you reveal to us by your spirit who you are and who we are and what you would like to do in us and what you would like us to do in this life. And we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So has anybody ever like built a house? You just hired a contractor, you built a house. When I was a kid, my parents did that one time they built a house. And, and my dad used to go by the construction site three or four times a week. And, and I'd usually go with him because there's all kinds of fun trouble for a kid to get in on a construction site. So it'd be times to roam around and dig in mud and poke in concrete, whatever. But I remember one specific day that we showed up at that site. It was the day the foundation was poured. And, and that was the day that my parents started to feel like, okay, Now we're going to make some progress. We've got a foundation. We're going to have something to build on. And they walked all over the foundation, and they started to get a picture in their heads of, you know, this is where this bedroom's going to be, and the living room's going to be over here, and the dining room's going to be over here. But you know what? There was one thing we didn't do that day when the foundation was poured. You know what it was? We didn't move in. We didn't move in. Because a solid foundation is a great thing to build on, but it's a horrible place to live. You don't want to live on just a foundation. I can build my house on a sound foundation, but I can't make a solid foundation a home. I need walls. I need a roof. I need all that a house provides so that I can have a life in that house. See, the foundation is critical to building a house that stands, but it's also critical to build the house on the foundation. And so as we kick off this series this week called Foundations, it's all about the foundational beliefs that we hold as a church, the statements of faith that we not only stand on, but that we also hope to build our lives on. And each week we're going to look at one of our statements of faith, and for a couple reasons. First is there's a lot of new faces around here, and we want to be a body of believers that has unity 
and oneness in our core beliefs. So we want you to know what those are. We want you to be able to stand in the essentials of the Christian faith. The second reason is so that as uh, 1 Peter 2.5 says, we can be built up as a spiritual house by God through faith in Christ. And so we have these foundations, but we need to build on them. If we just stand on the foundation, eventually we have no life. We're just standing on something that's true and real. But the point of the foundation is to build a house, just like 1 Peter says here, that we would be built up as a spiritual house. And so as we explore our first statement of faith today, and you can find all of our statements of faith. If you go to our website and you hover over the Who Are We tab and then click on What We Believe, you'll see all these statements of faith. But this is our first statement of faith, and it's about the Bible, and, and it's going to be on the screen behind me. So we believe that Scripture is inspired by God, that it's inerrant in its original writings and infallible, that as the Word of God, it has divine authority over faith and our practices of faith. That is a foundational belief for us at Temple, and is born out of two things that I want to help you grasp today to walk into. The first is the reliability of Scripture, and the second is faith in the inerrancy of Scripture. So this morning, I want to help you see that Scripture is reliable, and then I want to encourage you to trust it as inerrant. And the only way we can accept the inerrancy of Scripture is by faith. So first, let me define these two terms for you, just for our purposes this morning. The first one is reliability. Reliability simply means that something is trustworthy, that it performs consistently well. You have a reliable car because when you crank it up, it actually starts. When you hit the brake, it actually stops. That's reliability. Inerrancy obviously means to have no errors, to always be right, to always be truthful. So we're going to walk through those two things today. The first one is reliability of Scripture. Now here's the question. If we want to know if Scripture is reliable, does it hold up as historically accurate? And the short answer to that is yes, it does. And in the interest of not boring you, well, not boring you at least more than normal, with a bunch of historical data and facts, I'm just going to say this. There is more evidence for the reliability and authenticity of Scripture than any other ancient manuscript. Here's one quick example. There are 25,000 manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts of the Bible in existence today. 25,000. Now in contrast, I'm going to mention the uh, book called The Gaelic Wars by Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar wrote The Gaelic Wars and this is a book that is attested to by history. Historians say, yes, Julius Caesar actually wrote it, and what it describes is accurate. That was written in the first century B.C. There are ten, ten manuscripts in existence of the book, The Gaelic Wars. 25,000 manuscripts of Scripture, ten of the Gaelic Wars, written in the first century century BC. And the earliest copy of the Gaelic Wars was written a thousand years after the original was written. The earliest copy of a manuscript of the New Testament was written less than a hundred years after the events of the New Testament. 
So if we look at just the standards of reliability for ancient documents, the Bible stands up better than almost any other ancient document to the test of historicity. That's pretty sound reliability, right? Now, there's, there's also historical and archaeological reliability in Scripture. I'm going to give you a present-day example of that. Just this week, I saw an article on foxnews.com, and it was about an excavation in Jerusalem at the Pool of Siloam. And it's been excavated, and they're about to open it where tourists can actually walk into this pool. Now, the Pool of Siloam is mentioned in John 9 as a place where Jesus healed a blind man. He put mud in his eyes and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam and you'll get your sight back. It's also mentioned in 2 Kings 20 in regard to King Hezekiah. It was the place where the water supply of Jerusalem was, was available and stored. And so the discovery and the excavation of the pool establishes reliability of the Bible in terms of historical location and an actual site. And there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other archaeological sites and historical proofs of the Bible's reliability. However, however, reliability does not prove inerrancy. So we can accept Scripture as reliable based on the evidence in the world, things that have been discovered in manuscripts that exist. Inerrancy is all about truth, and it has to be accepted in faith. We cannot prove inerrancy. If you've ever had to go to court over a dispute of any kind, or you're like us, you watch a bunch of courtroom dramas, you know that truth and fact are not the same thing. Oftentimes, the job of a lawyer in a court case is not to find truth, but to use the facts to support the truth they're trying to present so that they win the case. See, here's the thing. Truth tells me what's real, and truth always conforms to the mind, the will, the character, the nature, and the being of God. Truth tells me what's real, and the only reality that is real is God. The rest of this is temporal and will go away. This is important to understand if you are going to accept the Bible as inerrant. So understand this, when we talk about inerrancy, we are not talking about facts. The fact that they've discovered the Pool of Siloam and proven a historical site makes the Bible reliable, but it doesn't make it inerrant. What makes it inerrant is if I trust in faith that Jesus actually healed a blind man there, which can never be proven by fact. So we have these two things that we have to understand, reliability and inerrancy. Now, I'm about to go to a place that I don't want to go to, and I don't think most of you want to go to. But in the interest of pressing deeply into this point of inerrancy of Scripture, we're going to go there. So I want you to open your Bible or get your phone out and look at 1 Samuel 15.3. And I know at least a couple of people in this room that I've had conversations with this verse about in private are going, oh, no, he didn't. He did. And I'm not going to go to this verse and resolve anything for you today because I can't resolve it for myself. But I want to invite you into being unresolved in it. So listen to this. 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Go and attack the Amalekites. Destroy them in all their possessions. Don't have any pity. 
kill their men, women, children, and even their babies, slaughter their cattle, their sheep, their camels, and their donkeys. Now let me say out loud what many of you are thinking or have thought over these type of verses. If Scripture is inerrant, then I have to accept that God told Israel to kill women, children, and babies. Is this verse a reliable reporting of a historical event? Is this verse an accurate conveying of truth? See, now we're stuck, right? Because none of us want to believe in a God who will tell his people to go annihilate women, children, babies. Here's why, as a fact, it's easier for us to accept Scripture as reliable in telling us that all the Amalekites were killed by Israel. It's easier to accept that. But what we don't want to accept, what we're not so comfortable with, is this idea of truth contained in this. Because if truth truly is what conforms to the mind, the will, the character, the nature, and the being of God then I don't like this verse. Or, I don't like God. I'm stuck in a spot if I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I can accept the facts, but the inerrancy part doesn't really sit well with me. See, my point in bringing this up is not to get you to question God and His goodness and His nature, but to challenge your concept of God. Most of us would read 1 Samuel 15.3 with a preconceived idea of who God is and how He should act and what He should do and then interpret that verse through our lens. This is who I know God to be, therefore that's what this verse must mean because I do trust it's an Aaron. And we interpret that verse through our lens instead of through the truth of who God is as He has revealed Himself to be in Scripture. See, it's easy to trust 1 Samuel 15.3 is reliable. I could guarantee you that there's probably some archaeological evidence out there of some mass destruction event of a group of people who called themselves the Amalekites in some ancient Palestinian location. But the question is this, can I accept that Scripture is inerrant when it says things that challenge my perception of truth? And remember, truth is... God's mind, will, character, nature, and being. So when Scripture forces me to challenge my perception of God's mind, nature, character, will, and being, based on who I perceive Him to be, can I accept it as an errant? This is why accepting Scripture as an errant matters. Because if I don't accept Scripture as an errant, then I will never let God be more to me than I think he is in this moment. I will always say, I stand before Scripture and I see the God that I know, and that's it. But the God that I know, I will never give space to grow beyond how I know him. You will always be who I see you as, God. And now I will interpret everything in Scripture through that lens. See, I, I can't, at that point, resolve my questions over 1 Samuel 15.3 if that's where I'm starting from. If all I'm looking for in the inerrancy of Scripture is reinforcement of my perception of God, I will never resolve these kinds of questions. They're just too hard. And the reality is, 
I can't resolve my questions over 1 Samuel 15.3 this morning as who I am today, as how I know God today. I have ideas, I have thoughts, I have concepts from other theologians that I can read, but I can't resolve them. Which means I can't resolve yours. See, inerrancy of Scripture demands that I become and remain teachable on the subject of God's will, His mind, His character, His nature, and His being. I must become teachable on who God is if I truly believe that Scripture is inerrant. Because if I'm not teachable, I will collide with a whole bunch of 1 Samuel 15 threes and never allow God to expand my perception of Him. I will just say, this is what that means because this is who I know you to be. And guess what happens when I do that? When I stand on my perception of God as the interpretive lens of Scripture, I don't grow. I stand only in who I am. And think of the hubris in that. God is infinite, but I have Him all figured out. Really? I want to spend some time with you then because i got a ton of stuff I can't figure out. If you have grasped the infinite fully, come teach me. None of us have grasped that. None of us can. If Scripture is inerrant, then we have to approach Scripture with the idea that there are things of God I don't understand in this moment. But I'm not just going to skip over the verses that challenge my understanding. I'm going to actually sit in those. I'm going to wait in those. And when we sit in it, when we wait in it, when we say, God, I'm going to come to your inerrant word and let you by your spirit reveal yourself to me, then guess what happens? That John 17, 3 kind of life, that, that verse that says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That kind of life will explode in my soul. And I'll actually begin to live my eternal life out in ways I never would have imagined. When I live in the inerrancy of Scripture, even when I can't fully understand it, or explain it, or even like it, when I live in the inerrancy of Scripture, I will know God more intimately and deeply, which is the very essence of eternal life is to know God. But unlike reliability that I can prove, that I can accept based on evidence, inerrancy can only be accepted by faith. And so now look at 2 Timothy, the verses 14 and 15 in chapter 3 with me. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy's learned that the Scripture is reliable. It's a reliable source of fact and information. Paul's reminding him of that. He's saying, look, you know that these writings are reliable. There's wisdom in there. And he knows that that wisdom that's contained in the Scripture is wisdom for salvation. 
Now listen closely to what I just said. Scripture is the source of wisdom for salvation. I didn't say that Scripture saves us. The Holy Trinity is not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scripture. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I will never get the wisdom of Scripture for salvation apart from the Holy Spirit revealing to me. Too often what happens is we stand on Scripture because you know why? It makes a really good platform to fight from. This is what the Bible says and I'm going to fight you against it. How can I stand and let everybody know what I'm against if I don't stand on Scripture? We were never invited to say what we're against. We were invited to be the manifest, incarnate presence of Christ in this world. And so when we stop at the reliability of Scripture, too often what happens is we just become argumentative. But when we on faith accept the inerrancy of Scripture, well, then something else happens. John 17, 3 happens in us, and we start to live an eternal life, which is knowing God and knowing Christ. So Paul tells us what saves us in verse 15. It's faith in Christ. Here's the thing, though. If I don't see Scripture as reliable, I'll always question whether or not it reveals salvation to me. I might not see Christ throughout Scripture if I don't accept it as reliable. And so that's what verses 15 and, or 14 and 15 are telling us. They're telling us that the reliability of Scripture is important, not because you need a place to stand, but because it reveals wisdom that will save you. That's why the reliability of Scripture is important. Now we're going to get back to the inerrancy of Scripture, putting our faith in the inerrancy of Scripture. And that's in verse 16 and 17. Listen to this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every work. Numbers 23, 19 tells us that God is not a man and He doesn't lie. And so if Scripture is breathed out of God and God cannot and does not lie, then what does that tell us about the inerrancy of Scripture? It tells us that Scripture, is the, as the Word of God, is truth. And remember what truth is. Truth is reality. Truth is what I stand on, what I build everything else on. That's the foundation of the house that's being built. And truth conforms to the mind, will, character, nature, and being of God. And just on a side note, this is free. This was, has nothing to do with the inerrancy of Scripture. But this exactly is why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, because as the truth of God, He perfectly conformed to God's mind, to God's will, to God's character, to God's nature, and to God's being which is truth. Reality that conforms to all of those aspects of God is what truth is. Jesus could confidently say, I am the truth, because He conformed to who God is. And that brings us to the second part of verse 16. Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. This is where inerrancy of Scripture as an act of faith becomes super important. Super important. And here's why. 
If I don't trust in the inerrancy of Scripture by faith, then I will give myself a pass. When I don't like the teaching, I'll give myself a pass. When the reproof of Scripture seems too harsh to me, I'll just give myself a pass. When the correction is going to cost me something that I really want, I just give myself a pass. Or my flesh doesn't want righteousness, but instead wants sin, I just give myself a pass. Because I don't believe it's inerrant. I believe it's inerrant in the ways that it serves me and in the ways I understand it, but not as truth. Remember, accepting Scripture as inerrant is a matter of faith. And faith is actually a lifestyle of aligning all that I am with truth, which again is God's mind, His will, His character, His nature, and His being. Faith is not something I have and hold on to. Faith is something that I live out. My parents looked at the foundation of the house and said, it's good, we can build on it. When we look at the foundation of Scripture and say it's reliable and it's inerrant and don't build, we need to ask ourselves, do I really trust that it's reliable and inerrant? If Scripture is the foundation of my life, because it's reliable and inerrant, then you all will know that by my lifestyle. And that's how the man of God becomes complete and equipped for every good work in verse 17. And so now here's the part where I'm going to make some frenemies. Inerrancy applies to Scripture, but not to interpretations of it. Let me say that again. Inerrancy applies to Scripture, but not to interpretations of it. Interpretations have to be faithful. They need to be faithful to the original intent of the inspired authors of Scripture. The intent that God gave them when He said, write this down. And this is why sound and faithful Bible study is so important. If I accept Scripture as inerrant, then I must approach it with humility, and with faithfulness. Faithfulness to what the original author's intentions were. Not my interpretation of it in 2023 Canada. And see, that brings us back to 1 Samuel 15.3. I know exactly what it says to me. But I have to accept that I don't fully grasp what it says about God. Because I can't reconcile that command that God gave the people of Israel with who I know God to be. So I know I have some growing to do in my approach to Scripture and in my knowing of God. So the question isn't, God, how could you do this? But the question is, God, what am I missing about you? There's something in me that can't reconcile these things. My assumption is going to be, I don't know you deep enough. Not, you're wrong. And we've seen a lot of discord this summer in many Christian denominations. And there's discord on, on both sides. And when there's discord on both sides, we tend to hear both sides saying, but we're standing on Scripture. Well, if you're both standing on Scripture, how is it possible that you disagree? So the reality of it is, you're not really standing on Scripture. You're standing merely on your interpretations of it. Without humility which says, hey, I could be wrong, but this is what I think. And without faithfulness to the original author's intent. 
Therefore, I can take it, interpret it in a way that best serves my empire here now, whether that empire is a church or a lifestyle, and I'll stand on that and I'll fight everybody who's against it. Because this is how it's supposed to be. So when I know Scripture is inerrant and I know that God is infinite, shouldn't that leave me in a place of humility before God? And humility before God sounds like this. It leads to me asking God, the Spirit, to reveal Himself to me more fully in His Word. Not asking God, the Spirit, to give me opportunities to stand on my interpretation. It leads to me being drawn deeper into Christ through His Word. Not being able to stand more firmly against others who don't agree with my interpretation. It leads to my life being transformed through the Word of God, not me being able to justify how I live. In short, humility before Scripture is to seek to be faithful to God's revelation of Himself. And the totality of God's revelation from in the beginning in Genesis to the last amen in Revelation is Jesus Christ. The entire book is about Him. And so when I read Scripture and I can't reconcile a verse with the person of Jesus, He's not the problem I am. I need to be humble and readjust my concepts of who He is, of who I am, of what He's doing and let His Spirit speak to me. This isn't about simply being correct in my understandings. This is about manifesting the presence of Christ to a world that needs the wisdom for salvation. It's about becoming complete so that I'm equipped to do the good works that God has laid out for me to do. This isn't about winning a debate. Inerrancy of Scripture isn't about winning a debate. You know, I've been through the ordination process and, and one of the things they ask you to do in the ordination process is write a dissertation of all the beliefs that you hold. And you know what I'd love? I'd love if when I went through that ordination process, they called me up and said, hey, here, your shadow's here. They're going to follow you around for the next two weeks and then they'll tell you what you believe. Probably wouldn't be ordained. I'm not sure anybody would. Because if you listen to my professions and you watch my life, there's always a gap. There's always a gap. See, I want to address this foundational belief about the inerrancy of Scripture for a very specific reason to start this series off. And that reason is evangelism. I recently read the results of a study on why people are leaving the church in North America. It was a study by a guy named Russell Moore. It was published in Christianity Today. I'm going to spare you all the statistics because you don't want to listen to that and you're already about to fall asleep. But I want to share with you one quote, very important quote from his research study. Listen to this quote. Young people are not leaving the church because they don't believe what the church teaches, but because they don't believe that the church believes what it teaches. Yeah. That should pierce us to the core. Because that's people who are not in Christ, who don't accept the inerrancy of Scripture, looking at us and saying, it can't be inerrant because I see you. That has to stop. It has to change. We cannot be a people who you look at our lives and you don't see that God is who He is. Because we don't live by what we say is the only thing that matters. 
And how do we change that? We change it by differentiating a couple things, honestly. We begin to understand the difference between what's called a confessional belief and a convictional belief. Confessional beliefs are what I say I believe. Do you believe in the Loch Ness Monster? No, I do not. Great, there's my confessional belief. You know where I stand. But if I said I don't believe in the Loch Ness Monster, and then I said, hey, I'm going to be out of town for a month. Where are you going? Well, I'm going to Scotland. I got a submarine. I got all kinds of underwater camera equipment, and I'm going to go get a picture of the Loch Ness Monster. You'd go, wait a minute. You said you didn't believe it. No, I don't believe it. Well, then why are you living as if you believe it? Which is what a convictional belief is. A convictional belief is what you would say I believe if you followed me around for a while. See, here's the thing, Temple. If we believe that Scripture is inerrant, would an unchurched person say that about us based on how they see us live? Would an unchurched person look at your life and go, I see it. You do believe Scripture is inerrant. Well, how do you know that? Well, because I saw you in Walmart, and when that mom of three kids cut in front of you in line, you immediately defaulted to, this person is more important than I am, I'm going to esteem her as more important than myself, and you didn't get mad. Oh, okay. Huh. Didn't realize that's what I was doing. I didn't realize I was living out my faith in that moment. Let me say it another way. If someone in your life came up to you and said, I'm going to accuse you of being a Bible-believing follower of Jesus, would there be enough evidence from the security camera in the mall or from your browser history or from the testimony of your spouse or your kids, from the dash cam video of you driving, from your financial records, from your calendar, from your conversations at work, from how you treat the outsiders at school and in the emails to convict you of being an apprentice of Jesus? Is there enough evidence to convict you of that? Or would it be a hung jury? Or would you just be acquitted? See, that's what the world finds unbelievable. We stand up and on social issues, we say, the Bible is inerrant, you have to follow it. And then we go out and live as if it's optional. Would you be convicted as a follower of Jesus? Would there be enough evidence if that was the accusation against you? Something to think about. Something to think about. I want to leave you with a practice. And it's one that we should all be practicing anyway, right? It's to read your Bible as if it's inerrant. Not to read your Bible as if your interpretations of it are inerrant. But read your Bible as if it is inerrant. Because I think if we stop and we think about our perceptions of faith, the tenets of faith that we hold on to, I guarantee you all of us can look back and go, yeah, I used to believe this about that verse, but I don't anymore. Now I believe this. And if you believe the same things from Scripture that you believed the day you were baptized, can I tell you, you're just not growing. For us to grow means that God says, I will entrust you with a deeper, greater revelation a deeper, greater revelation of myself, of who you are, of how I want you to live, of what the call is on you. So what it means is we approach the Bible as inerrant, not convinced of what we think, but convinced that there is always more of God to know. 
And so I open my Bible, I read a verse I've read a thousand times, and I say, Lord, there's more of you to know in this. Reveal it to me. You let your scripture reading be a Holy Spirit-led endeavor, not a self-reinforcing opportunity. And here's a thought that might be helpful as you approach scripture with humility this week. Reliability tells me that scripture is safe to press into. Inerrancy by faith tells me that it's safe to let scripture press into me. Because it's reliable, I'll invest my time and effort in reading it. Because it's inerrant, I will let it have its way with me. And so because scripture is reliable, I want to invite you into accepting on faith that it's inerrant. This may be the most critical tenet of the Christian faith to accept the inerrancy of the Bible. In order to truly accept the inerrancy of the Bible, I have to accept the errancy of my interpretations and approach it with humility and faithfulness to the original authors, the revelation they received. And we'll leave you with this quote because Benjamin Warfield said this better than I could ever say it. The trustworthiness of Scripture lies at the foundation of trust in the Christian system of doctrine and, there is, and is therefore fundamental to the Christian hope and life. We're never going to have a Christian hope that we live out of. We're never going to have a Christian life that we live into apart from trusting Scripture. Father, we are so grateful for Your Word. Your Word that has been written over thousands and thousands and thousands of years and still stands. And God, we know it's reliable. We have evidence and proof all around us in the world of the reliability of Your Word. But Lord, grant us the faith to stand in the inerrancy of it. Grant us the conviction by faith to stand in the inerrancy of being reproofed by it, of being taught by it, of being led by it, of finding you more deeply through your word and then living that relationship out in the presence of others who neither see your word as reliable or inerrant, but also feel they have everything figured out. So God, this week, invite us all into a place of approaching your word with humility and faithfulness and then do a mighty work in us, a mighty work of revelation of who you are, but also clarity of who we are and how to live aligned with your truth. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen.